0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. All the stats tell us that in the organisations that spout a lot about gen- on gender representation, when you do the data cut, they're in HR and in non fee earning roles, and nothing, nothing disparaging about that at all, please. But you know, we need women who who are you know taking account of P and L. We need women who are making critical strategic decisions.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Hearing Podcast. Great to have your company as ever. Today's episode, I'm going to interview Victoria Lewis, and Victoria is the CEO at Burn Dean. Amongst lots of things, Victoria and I talked about what does Burn Dean actually do? Burn Dean is a workplace behaviour training and consultancy, offering services to clients all around the world. And Victoria and her Uh, members of her team there, they are a lot of them are senior employment lawyers providing, facilitating training to clients and also we talked about really personal issues actually that impact you in the workplace and Victoria was very vulnerable and shared a lot of her own personal experiences as a woman, as a professional and how that plays out in the workplace. So I wanted to talk to Victoria because we have a very personal connection on many levels. A, A friend of mine uh, was a former lawyer, has joined Burndean, absolutely loves it there. Another personal connection and something we have in common is that we've both experienced loss. A significant life event which has changed the trajectory for our careers, changed the way we think about ourselves, changed the way that other people perhaps interacted with us or didn't interact with us because there was a barrier there that people felt uncomfortable talking about the loss that we've experienced. And we, we really connected on that level. And we delved into that. Um, we are both trying to you know, create better workplaces where people feel valued for their difference, respected, included, and engaged. And we get into all of that. How do you do that as an organization? How do you ensure that people do bring their whole selves to work and get the best out of them? So it was a fascinating conversation. So sit back, listen, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The Hearing. Victoria Lewis, you are my next guest on the Hearing Podcast episode, so it's lovely to have your company today. How are you today? I'm really well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to see you again because you interviewed me on your podcast not so long ago, so really nice to see you again. So you are the CEO of Burn Dean, and I'd like our listeners to know a little bit about what does Burn Dean do exactly, and what do you do as CEO? What's your day-to-day job look like?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, and it's lovely to be here. Um, so, we are in our 20th year, actually. We have a birthday later on this year. And we are a, uh, Bernadine is a global workplace behavioral consultancy, which is a bit of a mouthful. I think if I was doing my elevator pitch, it's, ba- it's basically we talk about emotions in workplaces. And all the stuff that goes on, of course, the way you feel impacts the way you behave, the way you act and the way you perform. And what we do, what we do with our clients is try and help them create workplaces that are kinder and fairer um, that will realize potential, the potential of their people and, of course, of the organization. So that's what we tend to do uh, in 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 the day job. And I'm the CEO of Burndean Limited, yeah.
1: Brilliant. And and what sort of sort of, what sort of typical challenges come up then for a client? Are they are there a range of law firms, public private sector? What kind of clients come to you, and what sort of problems do they have?
0: It's a whole range. Predominantly, uh, I'd say you know sort of a, over sixty percent of our client bases, professional services. Lawyers love ex-lawyers. Um, I am yes. a lawyer I know we'll get onto that. Yeah. Um, financial services, other global corporates, tech companies. So a whole range of really private sector. And um, we do do a lot in the charity sector as well. And our business is structured into three ways, really. One, uh, what probably a lot of us, a lot of our clients know us for is the training business. So we help train their people, often their leaders, but often their staff in anticipating and preventing workplace problems, but also in skilling their people up um, in how to deal with them. So the theory, as you know, can be so simple in this kind of stuff, but Mm. actually what to say, when to say, it, how to say it, who's nearby, all of those kind of things, translating the theory into practice is I think what we're known for in our training. We also have a strategy business, which I head up, which is a sort of consultancy business. And so a lot of my day job is answering the phone to clients who say basically, oh, Victoria, I've got a problem and I have no idea kind of what it looks like. We think we've got a culture issue and we need help. So it's what I call the scratchy head moment and they want to talk it through And we try and work out what what the best way to go is. Mm. And our third area of our business is our resolution business. And we look at resolution, you know, really in that whole breadth of the word resolution. So we come in, you know, when the bomb has gone off typically. So a grievance has been lodged or there's a disciplinary or misconduct matter in some way. And the organization needs an independent investigator we well, very often a mediator, so we have trained and um, accredited mediators, and we come in as that sort of expert, independent force to help, yeah, of course, some fact-finding in, in a traditional uh, legal investigation uh, mindset, if you like. But I think what we're able to do, because we're no longer practicing lawyers, was we're able to say, hold on a moment, let's stop the clock. Is anybody having a conversation? what's the blockers for having a conversation in this? So it doesn't have to be on a path of always going to investigation. We look at it as early conflict resolution, try and help take some of the heat out, try and get people talking again. And so that's the sort of three areas of the business that we do. So people come to us, I think, because they're looking for help, they're looking for a partnership, but they're actually looking for quite an agile different way that things could pan out not procedure led they want that mm. flexibility and innovation
1: from us that's really interesting and are all of your staff former lawyers or yeah mainly that i mean they're not is the
0: answer um mm. we're traditionally known as the ex-employment lawyers and so there's a there's a vast majority of us who are and look at people in workplaces and their emotions but come to it from that legal context but we also have mental health experts we also have N&D experts we also have some HR professionals so anyone that's sort of been involved in workplaces but it is true to say that a lot of our traditional clients come to us because we do the half that employment lawyer expertise
1: yeah yeah. And so let's get into your background. So you mentioned before you were a lawyer. So you were at Simmons and Simmons, I believe, weren't you? For Yeah,
0: for a I while was. I mean, I was a fairly traditional path. I mean, I went to uni, studied English because that was all I could do and had no idea what else to do and had a lovely time. And then left uni and I was like, oh, well, I have no idea what I want to do. Of course, my dad said, oh, you're going to be a teacher because you studied English. And was like, no. Um, but I did do some um, kind of TEFL teaching. And actually, I do think where I've ended up has kind of come from that because I did that for a couple of years. I sort of traveled the world teaching English. I taught in Zimbabwe. I taught in various other places, came back and i had a real kind of wonderness to see the world and to understand different perspectives and i know that that is part of what was sitting within me and there was one moment when i was lying on a beach in malawi as you do um and decided to go into law and i was reflecting kind of what made me go into law and i think a lot of it was around The the act of simplifying, the act of demystifying concepts, that interests me. And that always interests me when I studied English, to be honest. I liked the idea of making something simpler for people to understand. And I think that that's what I thought law was about. And in some ways of law in my training, I was like, no, that is not what it was about. I was never, I do not have the makeup to be a corporate lawyer. But I found something in employment law very, very early on. And I just knew in my training contract that's the lawyer I wanted to be. I loved the human side of it. I loved people. I loved, I loved the idea of helping someone leave their job and move on to something else. I loved the idea of of helping someone stay in their job if they thought that they were going to leave. I just, I loved, I loved what what work means to people,
1: yes.
0: um, and. So that's what got me involved. And, yeah, I qualified at Simmons and & Simmons and stayed there um, for 15 years um, as a practicing lawyer and left in 2005 when I came to Burdeen as a consultant at that point. And I don't think I was leaving Simmons. Um, in fact, we we left on very good terms and um, I weirdly went back and did a load of training there, trained my old bosses on inclusive leadership, <laughs> lovely, although I felt about 12 when I was doing yes. it. Um but, you know, I, I didn't think I left, I don't think I left Simmons. I left North, though. I did leave yeah. North, but didn't want to throw away my training, I guess, was was sort of, um, so when I left, I was like, not sure what I'm going to do with it, but I'll try this for a bit and, and ended up sort of staying in this. <laughs>
1: yeah, and you stay in places a long time because you were I there do. for 15 <laughs> years oh, for no. at Simmons and then burndin 18 years
0: yeah, 18 years, yeah. Well, so uh, yeah i joined burndin as a consultant and then sort of became employed in um 2010 um and and then and i'm still here now but yeah i'm not <laughs> i'm not a mover and shaker i guess the thing is i because because i've only ever I, I work with so many different clients mm-hmm. i feel like i have an understanding of just such a vast array of workplaces and what makes them tick. So it, it's quite weird when you look at a your paper. Yes, I've been I've been in two professional settings, but I feel like I've been in thousands of professional yeah. settings because I'm there with their people at the coalface all the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that background of being an employment lawyer and and having that credibility with, you know, perhaps law firms that instruct you or partners or whichever the team is within that law firm must be incredibly useful because you're inadvertically as one of them as well. I think that that goes a long way.
0: Absolutely. I mean it's not the irony is not lost when I'm there talking about bias um and inclusive leadership and of course the only reason I am sometimes in the door is because they've said you you will understand our people. Yeah. You know and and, and it's true. I, I I say I grew up in a in a professional services firm. So I get mm. the checks and balances. I get the squeeze. I get, I understand, I think, what motivates, not everyone, because no one's the same and their workplace is the same, but, mm. I, but I do get that. And I think that enables me to, as I say, to translate some of these complex concepts into a simple, tangible way.
1: Yeah, really useful. And since the pandemic, have you seen very different challenges that you're Clients are coming to you with yeah within their business. What what talk us through a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no you know there's no denying that the pandemic was transformational in terms of workplaces, and I don't think people are through it, and I don't think people understand it yet, and in fact, we're kind of reeling still from it. So I think when I when I was thinking about this the other day, I was thinking there's two areas for me. One is that it has widened the gap between age profiles, I think. You know, um, and I can't tell you how many times I hear people in in training sessions, um, you know, senior leaders talking about entitlement culture and talking about that disconnect and talking about people not understanding what's necessary to perform well, you know, to perform at their optimum level. And that kind of, why can't they do it in the way we did it? Why can't, you know, that, that lack of understanding, frankly, at a senior leadership level, and the expectations that you know more junior people have now about what their workplace will look like but also what it will give them Mm. Um, and it is an expectation and some person in someone's lens could say well that's entitlement but the point is don't meet in the middle here and this disconnect gets wider you know only in a session yesterday at a global bank we were talking about the banker of today And it's just like, you know, you need the banker of today. You've got to get closer to them. So for me, that was happening already pre-pandemic, but it has really polarized certain workplaces. The second area is kind of um, more basic, and I think it's just behavior. Now, whether that's about what was the Friday night drinks is now the Thursday night drinks, and whether that's about, oh, we're all in the office for two days a week as opposed to five, and let's go large. Behaviour is all over the place, Yasmin. I mean, we are being asked whether through the resolution training or strategy business to get involved in issues that I was doing when I was a lawyer pre-2005. Some of the behaviour, some of the harassment is so acute, is so out there wow. that I, you know, I I am I am shocked by it in a way that I shouldn't be shocked having
1: done this kind of work for, you know, kind of 40 odd years. So since there's pande- this pandemic, you found that the behavior is worse Yes. now than, oh my goodness. And you said, you alluded to the fact that it may be because people aren't in the office as much.
0: I think there's something about that. I think there's something around the encouragement of of bonding, and don't get me wrong, I'm doing it with my team. Let's get together, let's be together, let's connect as humans. But there's some sort of, yeah, let's go for it kind of mentality. And or there's something around other people's tolerances and what they've been through during the pandemic and what they're willing to share of themselves or not share and again, these things are just crisscrossing and, and getting wrong. And I'm, I'm seeing lots of people not understand the impact of their behavior, the things mm-hmm. they say and do. And I'm seeing a lot of people really holding those perpetrators, let's say, mm-hmm. to such a high level, You know, really a- assuming quite negative intent when often it wasn't negative, don't get me wrong, the impact yeah. was wrong and it was bad and it shouldn't happen. But again, that polarisation and is that pandemic or is that just where we are in society? Mm. You know, whether you talk about kind of the, you know, the trans and gender debates that are going on, mm. that polarisation. We're mm. we seeing that come out in our training sessions a lot. We we are known for having quite a challenging you know, a fairly provocative style in our training sessions um, because we believe that helps create reflection and with reflection um, comes learning and development. And so, we are very discussion-based. What we've seen in our training sessions is more anger and more volatility and articulation of that anger. So, we always got challenge. We always got a lot of challenge if we're talking about bias or behavior and, you know, are people too sensitive and all of that kind of thing? Mm. But it's more, as I say, it's articulated to a degree and, and
1: we see a little bit more anger behind it, people feeling threatened. That's really... I've seen that in my training as well. And I think... I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Victoria, but I do think social media does drive our culture in that we all have algorithms where we see certain articles we see people who agree with us there's a lot of confirmation bias going on and maybe our views are becoming more entrenched and so i i try and read lots of different newspapers and articles from people i probably vehemently disagree with or watch news channels that i think i disagree with probably 99% of what you say however i need to engage with that content to be really challenged and to understand what other people are saying about the issue you know it may be my truth but it's not the truth um, about what I feel about a certain issue. But if we are not challenged in that way, then we become quite intolerant about different viewpoints. And there's some people who are so like, I cannot read that or I can't watch this particular news channel because they feel so strongly. They almost do their own cancellation of it, if you see what I mean. And maybe we are holding the so-called perpetrators to account and cancelling them before we even give a chance to hear What's behind that behaviour? What's driving that? Rather than having a, a civilised discussion, we're kind of screening them out without actually having a proper debate or discussion or hearing opposing views that we may disagree with. I don't know if that's yeah, no, feeding I, into workplace cultures because it's a microcosm of what's happening in the world at large, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So a lot of the issues we come about are, you know, are, are, are the clashing of views and whether... You know, as I say, twenty years ago in our sessions, we might have talked, had a clash around religion and sexual orientation. Let's say, and, and and which belief trumps which belief, and and people would talk about that and be frightened about that, but would have still some awareness of it. I I see this, yeah, I can only call it this polarization, this not willing to listen hmm. to another's viewpoint or or respect. There's something around the respecting of the other's viewpoint. You know, no. It infringes my values and therefore I will not listen to it. And mm. the trouble is, you can't say, I embrace diversity and, you know, come on in, you diverse people, you into my workplace. Mm. And then shut these conversations down. That that just mm. can't happen because you're not embracing and welcoming diversity that way. Yeah. No, of course there are real issues around whether there is actually freedom of the speech in a workplace. Mm. And I say this quite frighteningly now, but you know I don't think there is freedom of speech in a workplace. I don't think there can be freedom of speech in a workplace because you can't just say anything. You know that that you want. You do need to be more measured, mm. but I do believe that there should be freedom of belief. I do think that there is freedom of thought, and then something has to happen in that channel, in that funnel, to help me land my belief in a way that's not going to totally upset someone. Because why on earth would I do that? But mm. there, there's just, as you say, this this canceling, obviously, that we know about that, and. It makes it just very, very difficult, and I think that there's a lot of in workplaces now, you know, channels for communication, and I'm all for it. Um, platforms, Slack channels, things like that, mm. that are often about non-work related issues as well, and that causes that causes some issues, mm. <laughs> and it causes yeah. debate, and and organizations have to get really smart about this, about what they're going to say and when they're going to moderate those conversations, and it's complex. Yeah. Yeah, that that's what we're seeing a lot of, and it's taking up a lot of bandwidth for us at Burdine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think it, as a trainer, it's that balance, isn't it? You want open discussion. You want debate, but at the same time, you're creating, and I know this phrase is used a lot, a safe place, a safe environment. For people who perhaps are from marginalized groups, that you know, it's that balance of actually we need to talk about some issues, but also being sensitive to everybody's feelings and views, and you know, not feeling that their identity is being attacked, but at the same time, you know, considering other people who may not agree with certain things. It's how do you strike that balance as a facilitator? Otherwise, people will just go away thinking, well, I just have to believe whatever. Is being told, and actually, it might harden their views on certain issues without having that open discussion and dialogue, and feel that you've included everybody in that conversation. That's inclusion as well as including the other people too. It's it's a very tricky balancing act, I find.
0: It is, and I think that's so right. One of the things I say when I bring new people into the team is more or less the first thing I say to them is, you know, don't preach at people. There's there's one way to hack your group of straight away and get their backs up you know and and who are you to say yeah. that your values and your way of doing things is the right way I, it feels too righteous and i think a lot of a lot of the stuff around bias and inclusion has a feeling of righteousness you know mm-hmm. i think this way and therefore i am a better human yeah. and 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 i try to have in my head always when i'm standing in front of a group you know you you're here it's a privilege for you to be able to talk to these people but you might not be right. yeah. <laughs> and you do have to create that safe space and you do have to demonstrate your own vulnerability and authenticity, I think. You know, that, look, I'm striving at this. I'm mm. working at this. You never get a psychologically safe workplace. You could never get there because as soon as you think you've got that, you're already taking your eye off the ball kind of thing. Mm. You're You're striving for it all the time. And I try to bring some of that in so that people feel that they can be more open themselves in 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 the sessions yeah the hearing on the outside you're a lawyer calm and cool but inside there's a passion to perform a drive to be absolutely on your game you prepare hour after hour day after day in the pursuit of excellence relying on superior resources serious preparation and total confidence that's the advantage we give you be your best with thomson reuters practical law
1: i'm kim vinell join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home
0: and around the world from the front line in ukraine
1: extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to hear a little bit more about you, Victoria. So when we sort of discussed what you wanted to bring out in this episode, is you said you want to talk a little bit more about the fusion of the personal and the professional woman. What did you mean when you said that, when we were discussing, you know, what you'd want to talk about today?
0: Yeah, it sounds very deep, doesn't it? I mean, it's it does. Deep, really. um, I, I guess the personal Victoria is the professional Victoria and the professional Victoria is the personal Victoria. You know, when someone sort of says, introduce yourself, I think I'm a mum. I think, you know, I'm a, a partner, a, you know, a daughter, um, a sister and a good friend, and then I'm a CEO. And but within my CEO bit, I am a friend at times. Not I'm not saying that I'm a friend with everybody in my team, but I I am one and the same. And I've kind of, I think that's probably why I've always struggled with terms like work life balance and bring your whole self to work. You know, don't get me wrong, of course. But I think that's the thing. Of course, I mean, how could you not <laughs> bring your whole self to work? Um. You know, it, it it almost it almost implies a sort of conscious decision and a kind of disconnection if, in my mind. And and for me, over the last thirty years, especially, it's one and the same. And I think it has definitely made me the the leader I am today. I mean, I'm a a complete open book with most of my team, and I encourage them to be the same. With me. Um, I do it with my children and my kind of teenage son. You know, he, uh, <laughs> it must be a nightmare having me as a mum because I'm like, tell me about the impact this is having on you. And he, <laughs> he goes, don't facilitate me, mum. You know, but it's, I, I, I only know one way to do this to be this Victoria Lewis, I guess. And I think it has helped me to build really, really deep connections with people and has enabled me to do the job. I do, because if those scratchy head moments when clients phone me, I think they're phoning me because they're saying, well, Victoria will understand the emotions, I can also, and often they're incredibly senior people within global organizations, I can say to Victoria, I don't know what to do. And mm. and, and the emotions I'm up against in my team right now are frightening me. And this is; these are really senior people saying this. Mm. To me. And I think it's... I think it's because I've been able to just be me in those quite frightening, messy moments with people. But I think you wanted to kind of understand where I thought it all began. and, Mm. And I have realized, especially I would say probably the last five years, probably as I've been reflecting more on my leadership style probably, what was it? What was the big defining moment if there was one? And I am certain that the, there was a deeply defining personal moment in my life and my career, and it changed me. And it was in, in sort of 1999, early 2000. And I was expecting my first child, Tom, uh, a little boy. Yeah. And I was eight months pregnant. And I went uh, preparing my caseload. I was still at Simmons, preparing my caseload, got the nursery sorted, et cetera, et cetera. And a routine scan showed that he had fluid um, on his lungs, in his lungs, and 24 hours later, stream of doctors, all sorts of issues, heart issues. He had a, he was Downs, yeah. but severely Downs, um, uh, club foot, um, so many different things. And in fact, I remember one consultant saying there is a shopping list of issues with your baby. And in 48 hours, I gave birth to my stillborn son, and there is no doubt that this kind of, you know, chains my life forever, I think, up to then. Incredibly privileged, live rose tinted glasses, Mm. unaffected by trauma. And, you know, why why ever decided to kind of say this in this podcast, I guess, because there is no I I can't talk about me now and my career or or me as a woman without Tom being in my head. It's just impossible for me. And and my kids understand this, that Tom comes into my head before them at times. Um, yeah, because it had this huge impact on me, it changed my outlook on life. It, um, I had an overwhelming need to recognize his existence. Um, and it was like, yeah, overwhelming. And, and my commitment to not cover him and to talk openly about him and about the way I feel, and there is no doubt that whilst I stayed at Simmons to have my other two children, it set a chain of events off in me. And there were instances around kind of how I talked about him at work and how mm. I, what I saw in the reactions of other people. People didn't like me talking about the death of my son. Um, and when I was pregnant with my daughter, who I got pregnant with her six months after I I lost Tom, and yeah. when I shared that with people, all they wanted to talk about was the excitement of me yes. being pregnant with my daughter, which I was excited, but I was also terrified as hell. And yes. also, in the excitement of talking about my daughter, I felt you're doing a disservice mm. to my son Tom, you know. And so for me, the two were so fused. And so, when you ask me that question, what's this fusing personal and professional? Mm. It's that, it's that, that moment of this, this is all about, this is all me. And whilst we don't need to talk about it all the time, it, it makes me and it, it, it it defines who I am and, and how I see things. And I think I just knew then, I knew that the way I felt was playing out in my behavior and was playing out in the way I interacted with people and Whilst I don't think I necessarily have a language for that then, I have come to realize that, that that was the moment in a way that I was in workplaces talking to people about emotions, doing their employment law issues, and just thinking, wow, there's just this whole, whole heap of human in, yeah. in these clients. There's a whole heap of human, human, and I'm a whole heap of human. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's, yeah, it flicked a switch in me. And it is mm. to kind of work out what that would look like. But I was, I realized I was just far more interested in the people in workplaces than the legal concepts of the people in workplaces.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all, for for sharing that. Um, it's not an easy thing to share. And I really appreciate you sharing it with me and, and also the listeners. And yes, yeah, so I can relate to so much of what you've said. I You know my own story. I experienced a a different kind of loss. And what I'm hearing from you, correct me if I'm wrong, is you are sometimes managing other people's reactions to listening to your story and listening to the loss you've experienced. So you're managing their emotions. And some people just are very uncomfortable talking about loss or disability, bereavement, all of that. And I suppose when you then um, became pregnant with your daughter, they're trying to channel their sort of emotions towards that and trying to put a positive spin on things. Whereas, you know, you're still dealing with the, the loss of your son and people grapple with that. Again, it's talking about good intention, but sometimes the impact of that on you is actually, no, I want to talk about my son because he's still a huge part of your life and still is 20 odd years later. How could yeah. it not be? You know, that that's going to shape how you see the world and how other people see you. I can relate enormously to a lot of what you said. Uh, 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 someone very close to me who lost um, somebody in an accident, he said to me, I need to live for two people now. And I remember hearing that thinking, gosh, I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. You know, this need to really live not just your own life, but really do service and justice to the other person who was lost by either talking about them or showing up in the work that you do or your behavior or whatever it is, you're living for another person as well to keep, keep them alive, um, if that kind of makes sense.
0: That's, that's, that's a really lovely expression. And I, I, I think that's true, it is keeping, it is keeping them alive. There was, a, there was a reason and there was a purpose and time goes on and there's a, time is a great healer, but I can, talking about you with you now, There is something going on with my arms. And when I talk about Tom, something goes on with my arms, and I don't know what it is. I I remember very clearly in the months after I I lost him, I didn't know what to do with my arms. And talking to a bereavement counselor at the time, they shared that that often happens with mothers after a stillborn uh, birth that they, you know, we're programmed to hold our babies. Yeah, and it was it was just this weird sensation. And when I talk about him now, you know, twenty two, twenty three years later, I, I've got this vi- kind of whizzing. Like, this is the way I describe it in my arms, um, and
1: it's just yeah. I hadn't heard that before. I know I, I heard that someone else who's experienced stillbirth. She put on Facebook the other day, "Still born, but still born." Yeah. You know, and I thought that was quite a nice way of expressing that, you know, it's still a person and you named him and, you know, you you had hopes and dreams. The nursery was done. It's still a life, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Mm. I I, I do believe it is not only changed kind of it created the path for me in in what I do now, but it also it has driven my leadership style. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, a, a phrase a lot of people talk about is compassionate leadership. And um, whilst I, I, I'm not say, suggesting that I have it, but I, that's what I strive for all the time is trying to think about what is going on for people, how, how is it impacting how they show up, mm. what do they need from me? In terms of you know that that empathy and that listening and that trying to meet them where they are as as the as the human themselves, um, yeah, there's no question that he has totally defined kind of yeah my leadership style definitely.
1: Well, you you also before we came on to record you 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 shared with me because I saw on LinkedIn that. You've been nominated for an award. Do you want to tell us, a, show off a little bit, Victoria. Oh, I did this, yeah.
0: I know, I need to get the certificate part of by office at home. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we were recognized as uh, one of the fastest uh, growing companies in the top 100 small businesses um, within the UK that are female-led. And the, the way that they decided and got us chosen as part of that top 100 was uh, based on employee growth. But also on a this sort of disruptive business model, and and yeah, that they were female-led, um, because as we know, there aren't enough of them. Um, I joked with my team that they could only come up with a hundred, and uh, that we made it to the hundred list. But hey, I'm excited, whatever. And yeah, it's you know after uh, after doing this and being a very small consultancy for many many years, and then deciding to kind of take that leap and try and share our purpose more and create better, lasting impact in other workplaces we decided that around 2000 and sort of six seventeen really and to go for a growth strategy it's it's lovely to see that that's been recognized yeah thank you
1: well congratulations that's a great achievement and i do wonder because of your style compassionate leadership empathic leadership you know the way that you think about how people are behaving and showing up and, and sympathizing, empathizing with that, whether it has, as a result of that style that you have as CEO, it has attracted a lot of women. Because I noticed that straight away on your website, you know, that was very, very apparent. There's a lot of women. And, you know, we've got a mutual, uh, one of your colleagues who's a very dear friend of mine. She'll be in yeah. Paris now listening to this podcast. I won't mention her name. <laughs> she is. Fabulous individual she is. She, um, she was very um, drawn to your company for those very reasons that you speak about, interested in the law, however, wanting something different, you know, caring about people, wanting cultural change, all of that attracted her massively to Burndine. So there's something about that, I wonder.
0: There's something about, I mean, look, if you were going to stand in front of rooms and talk to senior people in organi- global organisations about the culture of their firms, you have to dedicate yourself to the culture of your own firm. Um, It's relentless. It's exhausting. My team hold me to the highest uh, level of expectation. They provide feedback on a daily basis of when I get it wrong, which is often. Um, Mm. It's hard. Um, But what it has meant is, I believe, that again, whilst we don't always get it right and often get it wrong, I think people know we are striving towards a psychologically safe culture. I think people know that we are striving to create more balance in the world and in our workplace. Mm. We, The majority of the people who work for us uh, work flexibly. The majority are women. We does not mean to say we're already hiring women. We've tried to hire some men, yeah. um, but we do have some men. It's very important to me that you know all the stats tell us that the organisations that spout a lot about uh, gen- on gender representation, when you do the data cut, they're in HR and in non fee earning roles. Um, yeah. and nothing, nothing disparaging about that at all, please. But you know, we need women who who are you know taking account of P and L. We need women who are making critical strategic decisions. And I think that there is something around Burndeen. You know, we have mm-hmm. a non-exec director, founder, who is a woman. There's myself as a woman. We've got three of our uh, senior leadership team are women. And, you know, the point is there isn't a glass ceiling uh, at Burndeen. And I think people are really attracted to that and attracted to the message that we're trying to give our clients in in the way that we show up. We've got more work to do. We've got more work to do in terms of ethnicity representation. Mm. We've got more work to do in all sorts of other different under representation, but we're focused on it and we take our recruitment incredibly seriously. But most people who join us are choosing another way of life. I'll I'll be honest. We don't we can't compete salary wise with You know, where our people come from. They come from big law firms and they come from big global corporates. We can't Mm. pay the same. We are a consultancy, you know, and they're choosing something else. So we have, I think, a really good benefits package, but it's more about time off. So we close our business for obviously between Christmas and New Year, but also for two weeks in August. And we give that as a extra two weeks holiday on top of the normal holiday entitlement. And that is around us closing the doors and us all being off at the same time so that we're not, you know, when you go on holiday, you tend to dump everything on everybody else and you feel awful whilst you're away. Mm. This is about, no, we are all recouping, rejuvenating together. And there's something very magical about that. And I think a lot of people choose us for initiatives like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, that ne- leads me nicely on to an article I saw that you wrote about time. Yeah. Time being the new employee benefit. And according to Jennifer Moss, she talked about the burnout epidemic. Time is the single single biggest factor in reducing employee burnout. Yeah. Is that your view as well it that is, you found?
0: You know, and, and, and because obviously I'm interested in, in female talent, you know, there's just a wealth of material about women of my age, I'm 55, burning out right now, you know, and... It's the fallout from the pandemic and the homeschooling and the juggling and this benchmark, this bar of constantly having to prove and reprove mm. our worth and our value, and it's exhausting and depleting. So you get the just into her-, her herns, you get you know who's like nothing left in the tank. And whether you agree with her politics or not, mm. you know it's she had a different style of leadership, and it's a loss not to have that you know whether that's a leader or in the mix of leadership, you know, and yeah. there are a ton of you know there are, uh, all the those names menopausal woman here. But the names I've now forgotten, but you know, after Sheryl Sandberg, then there was the the other meta mm. senior individuals who left. You know, there's uh, Google. It's happened, and you're. It's interesting because people are finding that they can't do enough in the time that they have. So yes, I yeah. think. Time is a benefit to give people time that is attractive right now.
1: There was a senior leader, and again, her name escapes me, but she gave up work or stepped down from her senior leadership position to help, I think, her son with GCSEs or some exams that he he was taking, and she wanted to dedicate the time to him. It's this concept that women feel this pressure, I know it's a generalisation, to do it all, to do everything well, and sometimes time is something that goes against us, from trying to fit all of that in, and it's exhausting. And even the stuff that you're not paid for is not recognised. You know, all all the research shows that we're doing more of the stuff that takes up energy in our, in our brains, you know, things like the, arranging the birthday parties, the birthday cards, you know, all of the boring admin stuff that yeah. is, keeps things going in the family. I'm not saying men are not doing this as well, but no. the research shows that women are doing... A large uh, proportion of they those do things. more
0: of it of the sort of the household admin, and 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 I think the article you're talking about that I wrote um, was around the sort of pros and cons of the four day week. Yeah. Um, and I and I am a huge fan of the four day week. I do think a lot of people are not talking about it and not really realizing what it means. Um, so, you know, a big, uh, big retail, retailer, I think it was Sainsbury's, I mean, they came out and said it, um, were talking about their four day week, but they were going to reduce pay. <laughs> now, a four day week is, you know, is the 180 100 model where you've got the pay stays the same and the output is the same, but the input of time is different. Um, you know, so, so first of all, work out if you can do that. I think it's really tricky. Around part time workers, do you make them work another day more um, or do you pay them more for the amount that they work? So that gets tricky. Um, I think it's also tricky to do anything like this. I mean, this is kind of what we talk about, Bernadine, to change a policy and change a procedure if you're not going to work on mindsets. So I know, again, another client that has done this, but all their leaders work more than four days. So everybody else in the company sees their leaders work more than four days and thinks you know blimey you know so the reality is this and how does it how do they perceive me and what happens when it's bonus time do they think I'm actually contributing in the way you know so there's those kinds of issues and I also think you know the idea of the four day week is also that that all the admin I could do on my fifth day and so I've heard lots of situations where companies have said basically you can't do any Personal admin, any family stuff on those four days, because you've got your fifth day for that. You know, a knife doesn't fit into this neat pattern. So I think it's brilliant, but you've really got to work at the behavioral stuff to support initiatives like that.
1: Mm. And, and the article, I think you're talking about the four day week, there, there was research, wasn't there, between June and December of 2022, over 60 companies in the UK participated in the four. Yep. day week trial and it showed there was greater productivity less absenteeism and less stress as well and people were able to better manage their personal and professional commitments so it's probably worth trialing it's going to be messy but it's trying to work out the sweet spot you know it's worth trialing but get a get
0: a team who are responsible for making it a success don't leave it just to another policy it, 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 because there are so many issues with it, I think, that could make it fail, and then people turn around and go, oh, well, you know, that's why we have a five-day week. I also said in that article, the five-day week, we just invented, we invented this idea of a weekend. Before that, we were seven days a week. You know, So we
1: can reinvent again. Well, um, we reinvented post-pandemic. We looked pointless. at actually, yeah. should we work in a more hybrid way rather than having to drag ourselves to the office every single day? It took a pandemic for us to shift the way we traditionally worked, and we were very wedded to those ways of working. But it didn't work for everybody, you know. Um, so yeah, uh, we we can we can look at that. Victoria, we're running out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to add, or you want our listeners to know about you or Bern Dean or any of the issues that we've talked about?
0: Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, if anyone's got a tricky issue, just uh, you know, pick up the phone or or drop uh, drop us an email. You know, we. We used to have a catchphrase which is we love talking about this stuff. And I guess I hope that's come across in the way I've been speaking today. You know, you, you joked with me at the beginning, you know, you've had two careers. And and the truth is that this this second career at Bernine has been a kind of such a joy and an excitement. Every day I get up and do something different and I connect with different people and try and help them and simplify issues for them. And that's just a great privilege. I've been incredibly lucky uh, to have found my calling.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Victoria, for being a wonderful guest and telling us what you do and and what your organisation does. So thank you. My pleasure. Really lovely to see you. Thank you.
0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.